Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we have this opportunity to be together and to open your word and study it together. We pray, Lord, that your word would uh, uh, reach deeply into our hearts, find those places where we are not in conformity with your will, Lord, uh, and lead us to a place that better reflects your desire, that we love you with our hearts, minds, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Babies. Whenever my dear wife, my best friend and ministry partner, sees a baby, she says, oh, they're so cute. And sometimes I look and I go, are you sure? (laughs) Of course, all of our kids and grandkids were uber cute. We all know that. So there's no question in any of our minds that everybody that's genetically related to us and other people that we know and other people that we love and care about, they're babies. They're all cute. But you'll admit, right? You've seen the occasional baby where you've wondered, hmm, I'm not sure what that is. Babies. The earliest life stage, which we hope will progress along the way, right, to folks growing up and maturing and becoming um, uh, freestanding and yet interdependent in the body of Christ, actual people who kind of know what they're doing and are willing to do what they're supposed to do and who will set aside their self-interests and act in the interests of other people. Not always the case. I've had experience in church life before because I've done this once or twice where there's been somebody who's been, you know, a long-term member of the church and just, you know, been around for 943 years, and yet still everything has to be exactly their way or the highway. And I've had, you know, occasion once or twice where I wanted to, in my mind, I I performed this action. I didn't actually do it, where I walked up to them and grabbed them by the lapels and said, will you just grow up? (laughs) Last Sunday was Easter. My oldest, our oldest granddaughter is in medical school, which I know you find really hard to believe because I'm yet just, you know, 42. And, and, uh, and um, how can it be? But nonetheless, it is. And she was at one of those moments where she really wanted to be home with her family, but because she had a really difficult exam the next day, I think it was on the respiratory system, I told her, sweetie, just breathe easy. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, I, I can wait for a minute or two. Anyway... She had a really difficult exam the next day, so she decided to forego going home and hanging out with the family to hang out and to stay there at school and study for exam. And, and uh, it was one of those episodes that we described that is described frequently these days as adulting. I was on the phone with my son uh, last year sometime. I don't remember when because last year is pretty much a blur, of one continuous. I have no idea when I was anywhere with anybody doing anything, but... Uh, we were on the phone. He was having a bit of a tough week. And, and uh, in the middle of it, he said something like this. He said, adulting is hard. And sometimes it is. Sometimes you and I, even as our, uh, our more mature selves, would like to believe we have it all under control and we know what we're doing. Sometimes we realize that we, too, are desperately in need of resources into which we can lean to be the people God has called us to be in the places that he has called us to be adulting. Well, here's the thing. Babies, we look at, right, they, 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 they behave appropriately for their life stage. Even when you have to do the dreaded smell test. 
Or I've occasionally, I never did this myself, but I occasionally observe parents doing the even worse than the smell test, the dreaded finger checking test. <laughs> Yuck. But you don't expect babies to have fully mastered the intricacies of indoor plumbing. Right? You expect them to be babies. But we do expect that along the way that there would be development and normal growth, that they would grow physically, mentally, emotionally, and in the context of the body of Christ, we would hope they would grow spiritually as well. Well, we're going to go back to the book of 1 John this morning, where we were before Palm Sunday and Easter, and we're going to listen to this old apostle describe three stages of Christian development. For people who are really believers in Jesus in the middle of real life, with that real, no kidding, actually resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. So along the way, I think we need to ask ourselves, where am I here? Am I growing? Do I need to just grow up? 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. On the Pew Bibles in front of you, and yes, they're back in front of you in the pews on page 1899. If you're watching on the website, just to the right of the picture, there's an opportunity for you to click and find a Bible translation John says this, 1 John chapter 2, just verses 12, 13, and 14. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John kind of repeats for emphasis in this passage, addressing different groups of people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to unscramble those repetitions and regroup them so that I think we can see better what John has exactly in store. Now, in this passage, John is not primarily referring to gender, nor is he primarily referring to age. He's referring to spiritual development. And though sometimes we'd like to hope that there's a correlation between age and spiritual development, that's not always the case. So, let's look first at group one. I'm going to call them the Pampers crowd. Verses 12 and the first part of verse 14. These are people who we would call uh, babies in Christ. Um, folks who have just taken preliminary steps into faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, irrespective of age. I've known some people in my life who have been solid, maturing believers, and they've been maturing for the entirety of their lives, and so they can, with credibility, say, I've been a Christian for 45 years or 55 years. I've known other people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but who have stuck there. And so they haven't been Christians for 45 years. They've been Christians for one year, 45 times. Babes in Christ. Now, what John says to these people is, your sins have been forgiven and you have known the Father. Why do babies cry? They cry because they're hungry. They cry because they're thirsty. They cry because their diapers require attention. They cry because their parents have driven by Chick-fil-A without stopping. There's lots of reasons why babies cry. In fact, with respect to that whole diapers thing, I can remember the first night I babysat with my daughter. This was back in the day, I don't know if you remember this or not, back in the day of cloth diapers. Do you remember those that day? No. So she had, she, you know, I, I said, please don't 
do any of that stuff that's going to require me to pay attention to those diapers. But she, of course, in her willful disobedience to her father, decided to. And so she did one of those dark-colored messes. You know to what I'm referring, right? Anyway, so she did that. And so I had to change her. And there was, by her little changing crib, there was a stack of cloth diapers. And so what I did as her dad was I went through every one of those cloth diapers to clean her off, (laughs) saving just one for the final operation at the end. She looked at me very puzzled through the entire experience. She sometimes gives me that puzzled look even today. But John here, he's talking to dear children. It's a reminder how with this voice of assurance, reminds us that, that we have been forgiven. He says to these babes in Christ, these young believers, you, you have a new dad. It doesn't replace your old dad, but this is a perfect father. In fact, the language for, for, for God as addressed in the Father in the, in the New Testament is often a, a very informal, very loving, very colloquial term. It's Abba, it's dad. You've got a new one. But here's an important thing to note. And I know that you've come to really love our moments of grammar in our little conversations together on Sunday morning. But here's uh, something that's important about this. Your sins have been forgiven. This is in the original language of the Bible. This is in the perfect tense. And it means this. Although I've shared this with you before, so I should just give you a quiz and have you tell me what it means. Sorry. It means this. It's an action that took place in the past that has ongoing, enduring results. You have been forgiven. You have been forgiven. The sins that, 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 that bring us to the place of, the needing, of needing forgiveness, they have been forgiven. But babies, little ones, right, they need assurance over and over and over that they are loved and cared for. They need reminders with gentle affection. And John says, don't forget. Don't forget. By the name of Jesus, you have been forgiven by a heavenly Father who will never, ever abandon you. Young man walked into a jewelry store and bought an expensive locket as a present for his fiancée. And the jeweler asked, shall I engrave her name on the locket? The young man thought for a moment and then he said, nope, inscribe it to my one and only love. So if we split up, I'll be able to use it again. (laughs) Some of us might feel abandoned and some of us might feel like we've had Uh, human fathers who distorted the image of goodness. But today we can have the assurance through Christ of never being abandoned. It's not to my one and only love and I'm going to change my mind later. No, it's to you. Write your name. But here's the thing. God does not want us to be permanent babies. As believers, we should not be perpetually in spiritual daycare. We are called to, to move forward. Kids can be fun. They can be fun. After the christening of his baby brother in church, Jason sobbed all the way home in the back seat of the car. His dad asked him three times what was wrong. Finally, Jason said, that preacher said he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian home, and I wanted to stay with you. (laughs) Sunday school teacher asked her children as they were on the way to the church service, and why is it necessary to be quiet in church? One bright little girl said, Well, it's because the people are sleeping. (laughs) Kids can be fun. 
But we don't want them to stay that way. That's why we turn to this second group, and I'm going to call this second group the prize fighter crowd. Verses 13 and part of 13 and part of 14. John calls them young men. What he is describing is maturing believers. It doesn't matter gender. Young men. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do you get the repetition of overcoming the evil one? These are maturing believers. These are people who are in the fight. These are people who are not just enjoying forgiveness and the fellowship of Christ, but they are engaging in battle with the realization that the victory has been won. Again, again, the verb here, you have overcome, is in the perfect tense. It's a done deal with ongoing effect. But three things about this that I think are important for us to pick up on. The first one is the evil one, Satan, he's real. This is not some abstract evil This is the evil one. The second thing I think we should note is that Satan is ultimately a defeated enemy. He can bloody our nose, but he cannot win the ten count. Just recently, a Christian artist named Carmen, who was popular back in the day, he did these really... Uh, incredibly captivating kind of story songs. And he did this one song called The Champion, where it's a description of a fighters in the arena, and the evil one, Satan's there, and Jesus is there, and, 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 and Satan, you know, beats up on Jesus, and finally he knocks him down, and Jesus goes to the mat. And then they start the countdown, which you know, right, is supposed to go one, two, Three and on up until the person is declared knocked out and the fight's been won by the evil one. But no, the countdown starts and it's not one, two, three, it's ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And Jesus springs to his feet, the resurrected one who has defeated the enemy in battle. Man, it's what we celebrated last Sunday morning when we talked about the resurrection. That empty tomb demonstrates the reality of the power of Jesus to defeat the evil ultimately and uh, empower us. Empower us as we are in the fight. And today, if we, if we are in the fight, we, we realize that we are fighting with the Lord's army and in his power. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The victory is won. It may not look like it on any given day. We've had over a year now of pandemic, particularly stupid and, and in many ways devastating effects in people's lives. But we are believers in Jesus. We have hope. Not some wishful thinking, oh yeah, I hope everything's going to be okay. No, hope, biblically, hope is firmly grounded in the reality of the person and presence and work of Jesus Christ. It's actual hope, not wishful thinking. And because we have that hope, because we know the victory is ultimately won, we can move on in maturity because there is a third group in this passage. We had the Pampers crowd, we had the prize fighters. I'm going to call this group the perennials. 
verses 13 and 14 again. John calls them fathers, but again, this is not a reference to gender. This is a reference to mature saints. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. These are people who, regardless of their uh, gender, have come to to what we might call elder statesman status. These are people who have had first tasted of God's goodness a long time ago, but they remember it vividly. They don't just live in that initial excitement. They have reached powerful intimacy with the Father. They're already kind of consciously dwelling in eternity. They, they, they live in close proximity with the Father. And over the years, they have seen the truth of this message from the book of Malachi chapter 3, when God says, I, the Lord, do not change. God is a constant. God is reliable. And because of those things, he leads his people to maturity and consistency. Right? Perennials, I am not a, a, a person who's horticulturally minded. But I know this. Perennials come back year after year after year. And with God, it's not just year after year after year. It's moment after moment after moment. And this consistency of God is reflected in these perennials. This consistency of God shows up in their regularity, in their consistency in prayer and study and fellowship. These are people that you know you can count on. These are people who show up. And they don't show up out of duty or obligation. And they don't show up out of checking some checklist of, oh, I've got to be religiously involved because that's how it goes. They don't just show up because, hey, it's been my church for 900 years, and so I've got to be there to make sure they do everything exactly the way they're supposed to. They show up because a deeply rooted love for Jesus moves them forward. And they may move a little more slowly as they advance in physical years, but they are still men. They are still moving. An essential mark of biblical maturity is this notion of consistency. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Growing Strong in the Seasons of Life, he posed several questions which he says are all different and yet share the same answer. Here are his questions. What will guard us against foolish extremes? What characterizes those who are habitually successful in any skill? What single quality in a business builds respect deeper than any other? What brings security in relationships? What makes us choose a particular brand name over all others? What's needed most by, my, by parents in the home? What draws you to the same restaurant time and again? What do you want most from your paper carrier or the postal carrier? What will add more weight to your witness for Christ than anything else? His one-word answer, consistency. Now, I realize that we tend to view this in the way that I've outlined it, which is in kind of a linear way, moving from pampers to prizefighters to perennials. But the truth is, there's a little bit of irony here, because we all have the tendency, well, maybe you don't, let me just confess for myself, that I have the tendency to bounce around in between these phases from time to time. There are moments when people would expect that I should be this mature believer in Jesus because, hey, what, you know, I'm a pastor. But I have my infant moments as well. We all have the times, we all have times, I think, when our spiritual diapers need changing. 
And God himself performs the nose test. And he identifies something that just plain stinks. But this same God who points out what stinks is that same faithful, steadfast God who is there offering, reminding us of the forgiveness that's ours in Christ. Here's another irony that I've noticed from time to time. Those maturing saints, those people who are moving forward with Jesus, whether they are 29 or 89, they know something about real joy. I'm not talking about superficial, artificial, momentary, temporary happiness, like the kind that fills my system on Fridays when Pastor Laura and I go to Chick-fil-A and I embrace those chicken nuggets (laughs) and those waffle fries. That is pure happiness. But it doesn't last. I even have this feeling of dread when I approach with my fork because that's how you eat nuggets, by the way, is with a fork. When I approach my last nugget of my box of eight in the box with my fork, I realize that the second that thing's consumed, that happiness I've been experiencing is gone. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about happiness because happiness is circumstantially generated. Over this last year with the pandemic, happiness has been a bit of a fleeting commodity and a bit hard to grab a hold of. Not happiness. The Bible talks about joy. Deep-seated understanding of the absolute surety of the promises of God in Christ. Joy. The kind of joy that manifests itself when we partner with each other to do the things that God has called us to do. I've distinguished before, I think, between a good tired and bad tired. Bad tired is when you've done stuff you know you have to do, but there was just nothing in it that made your heart go bitter batter. Nothing. Good tired, rolling up your sleeves, partnering with others in Christ, accomplishing his mission purposes at the end of those experiences. Man, you are exhausted. I can remember once taking a mission group to a Navajo Nation reservation in Gallup, outside Gallup, New Mexico. We did two things. We had a bunch of young people there who were building what I call building the church, uh, ministering to people, encouraging them to come to faith in Christ, uh, uh, ministering to kids. And then we had a bunch of people, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the mechanically and, and uh, carpentry inclined crowd who were building the church building, right? So building the church and building the church building. Those are not necessarily the same things. You can attend to the church building and never attend to the church. Anyway, we took this group there, at the, and we were there for a week and a half. At the end of every day, you've never seen a group of such stinky, bedraggled, sweaty, exhausted-looking people in your entire life. And yet every one of them was replete with these stories of, you will not believe what I got to see God do today. Genuine joy. That's good tired. That's good tired. So, what mature believers know is that good tired, that's where we want to be. In his later years, Beethoven would spend hours playing a broken harpsichord. The instrument was worthless. Keys were missing. 
Strings weren't properly stretched, and it was terribly out of tune. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the great composer and pianist would, would play it until tears rolled down his cheeks. To look at him, you would have think, thought he was listening to perfection. And in one sense, he was, because Beethoven, of course, was deaf. Beethoven was hearing the sound the instrument should make, not the sound that it actually made. I don't know about you, but I've, I've had moments where I've felt like Beethoven's harpsichord. Out of tune. Out of date. Out of time. Inadequate. Insignificant. Broken. People look at it and go, that's useless. What do we think God does with broken instruments? How does the master respond when the keys don't work? What does he do when the strings are out of tune? Does he just junk the instrument? Does he demand a new one? Or does he patiently tune it until he hears the song that he longs to hear? Wherever we are on the continuum this morning, pampers, prize fighters, perennials, God is the master tunesmith. He is waiting for us to say, Lord, I'm not sure where I am here, but I know where I want to be, and where I want to be is with you. I want to be a perennial, no matter how old or how young I happen to be. Pray with me.